July 23rd, 2023. I'd like to go ahead in our conversation, the series that we called Agadan Halakha, Life and Law. This fourth installment might be the last, unless we decide to do one or two more, but it could serve as the last. In my mind, in preparing for this, it was the last. Just have a few extra thoughts. Uh, so I want to begin the class with the source that we've began every single one of the classes with, and that is the Gemara Masech Berachot and Dafhet. It's a well-known statement, as, as we discussed and mentioned, often a misunderstood statement of the rabbis. From the day of destruction of Mikdash, the statement goes, God has only left, so to speak, as his domain in this world, the four amot, the four cubits, the six feet of halakha. Now, it sounds like from reading it somewhat out of context and without a general breadth of understanding of the words of the Hakamim, well, that's a statement positively made in the context of halakha. You see the destruction of the Mikdash, you're searching, you want to find God, it's only going to be found through the study and engagement in halakha. Alternatively, as we discussed and developed over the course of the last several classes, it's more, that part notwithstanding, it's more bemoaning the absence of something else. Of course, those initial words of miyom shaharav bet mikdash, day the destruction of mikdash, it means you're searching and you'll only find it there as opposed to elsewhere. That's a very significant understanding and statement. And the statement in turn, as we discussed it, is in contrast to what we call agada, halacha to a large extent is, and I think people can appreciate this in contemporary, call it Orthodox Judaism, where people, generally speaking, find God's presence. It's that necessity of structure. It's that ability to be able to look at a system and find within it godliness as opposed to something more organic, the agada, uh, which really means to be connected, but in the context of the words of the hachamim, the narrative, the everyday expressions of connectivity to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So the statement essentially then made clearly is one which, yes, admits to the importance and authority of halacha, but at the same time, and oftentimes overlooked, uh, implies, but what about that which was lost? What was that? the realm of Agadah. Why would the rabbis imagine it as having been lost? I think that's very clear as well. We've discussed and developed this as well. During a time in which things were, in the eyes of our nation, thriving as they should be, an organic expression of connection to God was something which was apparent and manifested. It's when you lost that, when you're distanced from what you see as the ideal, that you need to build for yourself certain structure, certain stricture. I mean, we've discussed this in other contexts, and even in this series, how at times of exile, it's during those times specifically that we've found codexes of law. We found Shohan Aruch composed specifically after an expulsion from Spain and Portugal. We've found even Mishneh Torah Harambam during a time of tribulation and difficulty. It means to say instead of an organic connection, even to law, law has been, with all of its structure, with all of its stricture, has always been for us that binding force during times that it, wherein you couldn't find an organic a normal and healthy connection in what we're calling agada. I'd like to supplement this today with another Gemara in Masechet Bava Metzian Daf Lamed. 
Uh, this Gemara is a, somewhat of a surprising expression. Oh, the pasuk that the Torah, there in turn being Doresh, is uh, in Parashat Yitro. It's the words of Yitro to Moshe, what those judges whom you'll choose will do. And in that pasuk, in the Doresh, all the words, the rabbis, as they often do, it says, Asher Yasun, that which they'll do. I say the rabbis, you want to know what it means, that which they'll do? Zo Lifnim Meshurat Adin. This is a reference to that which is within the Shurat Adin. Shura means a line. Adin means the law. It means beyond or within the line, but not touching the line of the law. And we oftentimes, as a matter of fact, in my research, there's five places in Talmud where we talk about these words, lifnim mishurat adin. There's already an important expression. People always talk about it, myself included. We say it's outside of the bounds of law. It's quite the opposite of what the words say. The words say lifnim, inside. It's that you're not hitting the bounds. You're inside of them. You don't need to hit them. What sort of cases would we be referring to? We'll mention many as we go along, but already we can appreciate and understand there's the unspoken um, uh, activity, the unspoken conduct, whether it's interpersonal or between ourselves and God, which is not structured and specifically on black and white letters. That's what, in my mind, we refer to when we say we'll develop it as we go along. But continues the Gemara, for our purposes, the more important part. The reason, and again, the rabbis expressing a way of inspiring the people, less playing the role of God, say that the reason the Mikdash and Jerusalem were destroyed is it was because they judged by the laws of Torah. It's an amazing initial statement. That's why the destruction of the Tashkeh. says the Gemara, Should they instead have laws of anarchy? Uh, meaning the opposite of laws. <laughs> the problem was that they judged based on the laws of the Torah. Rather, the interpretation to that statement of Rabbi Yohanan was, the way in which judges and individuals, lay people alike, I assume, uh, acted during the generation in the eyes of the rabbis in the aftermath, uh, leading to the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, was they only followed the strict letter of the law, as opposed to beyond that. Now again, this Gemara taken in a vacuum can be expressed and interpreted in a plethora of ways. I'm certain many people would say, you see the Gemara is saying that you need to go above and beyond, it's all about stringencies, they were, had loopholes during that time period. We are, at least I am, alternatively going to suggest something a bit different over here. I'm coupling it with our first source and understanding this as being a sister statement to what we read in source number one. The statement of source number one was from the destruction of the Mikdash, the only way in which we connect today, sadly, and in a mournful way to God, is with the strict letter of the law. The Gemara in turn says, you want to know how the destruction came about? And what is left? What's left is all that was beforehand. We didn't know how to have the organic expression. We couldn't live that life of Agadah. The inspired connection outside of the specific letters and laws and lines which are drawn by Halakha, that's what was lost, and that's in turn, source number one told us, what is still lost. In truth, to, or to, you know, to, to color that a little bit, there is a commentary too, uh, much of Gemara, uh, certainly the Agadot in Agadah, it's called Ben Yehoyada, it's written by Ben Ishai, by the Yosef Chaim of Baghdad. He 
as you'd ex- expect, all the traditional commentators to ask, is, is horrified by this statement initially. The reason the destruction of the Tash came about is because no that's the problem? What about the statement of the rabbis, uh, which we're going to talk about in just three, four days from now? Sinat Hinam, baseless hatred. What about Gilui Arayot, Shfikutamim, even that the Torah study was not what it should be? I mean, what's with this statement over here in the Gemara? Uh, that it's because they didn't call Lifnimi Shurat I didn't suggest Ben Yehoyada listen first to the suggestion and then uh, perhaps uh, at least uh, an interpretation to his uh, explanation he uh, likens this to a Gemara in Masechet Berachot this the best of my knowledge and our sources is the last of our Gemara uh, so the Gemara Masechet Berachot has, a, has a, a, a very iconic in my mind description in the eyes of the rabbis of a conversation between angels and God and the conversation went as follows the pasuk on the one hand says judges God included of course are not allowed to source number four tells us accept any bribery they're not allowed to uh, raise anyone's face over another for a reason other than absolute truth this is what the law dictates on the other hand the Torah tells us in parashat God's going to raise your face above. He's going to favor you, Am Yisrael. The angels in turn say to God, as it were, in the eyes of the rabbis, how could it be? On the one hand, you told us there's no favoring in judgment. On the other hand, you favor Am Yisrael, responded God in the vision of the rabbis, in the telling of the rabbis. God said, how could I not? I told them, I told them when you become satiated, you should bless, you should be thankful for it. And they, even when they have a kazait, even when they have a kabeza, fast forward to 21st century, even when we, I don't know, whatever the point is, we have all sorts, that's right, we have two matzot, biblia ahat, and so forth. In other words, the same as, how could I not, how could I not extend myself to them? Says Ben Yehoyada, and then we're going to hopefully uh, put this all together. Says Ben Yehoyada, says Ben Ishchai in source number three. He says, what that Gemara is describing is, even outside of the bounds of what the law should be, if you're acting outside of those bounds, if you've extended it, if you've drawn the line earlier and understood, I can understand and appreciate this relationship in this fashion, well, in turn, there's a reciprocal reaction from God in some respects, says Ben Yehoyada. It might be that we were very sinful. Had we been getting the relationship aspect right, had we been, well, maybe that would have, quote unquote, spared us destruction. But I think this speaks to more than anything, and this will be our continued conversation throughout the class today, is to the relationship side and the experiential side of Torah and mitzvot. Instead of it merely being a legalistic formulation, a we do this because it's said to do this, the expression of Ben Ishchai, of that Gemara, is that when Judaism has become that, it's been debased. When Judaism becomes, what does it say, and that's how I do, that's a destruction of Mikdash. That's a miyom shaharav bet Mikdash. We're crying. All we have is halacha. We're no longer able to find you, God. We're no longer able to manifest and so uh, manifest this relationship outside of the strict letter of the law, what the book tells us, what the rabbis instructed us. That, I think, although it could be, and I'm sure has been skewed wrongly, is what that Gemara and Berachot means as well. The Gemara means not so much the three matzot on Pesach, not so much that there's stringencies. 
It's that there's an understanding of the law. It's that I understand your instruction, God, and I in turn have interpreted it in a way that's relevant to me. So yes, it manifests itself over there through astringency. It's an easy way of describing a dedication and a devotion. But more than that, it's about a relationship. It's about being in tuned or attuned to what this is about. It's about this life of, as we've been describing it throughout, agada. That's the uh, introduction, that's the direction of the class. It's been our conversation over the course of several weeks. Uh, this is really where I want to uh, crystallize it and bring it all together. And I want to, in this context, as we've gotten to this point, just take a step back and try to understand, well, in today's day and age, in 2023, how really have we gotten here? Whereas, and this is the way I introduced the series, you'll find classes of inspiration in our community, which are beautiful and wonderful and bring people to thoughts and feelings which are fantastic. And then you'll find, alternatively, people and classes which are dedicated entirely to law, to Jewish law, without any, and the inspiration words maybe the wrong word, an appreciation of the relationship dimension and understanding and a depth of what this is really all about. How have we gotten to that disparate, disjointed way of Judaism? Why is it that we're not able to enmesh the two? So again, in the words of the rabbis, that is destruction. That's their words. I would demonstrate it by means of, say it again. Third option. You have people that are focused on spirituality, people that are focused on that, and people that are focused on both. How many? The third option is the option. How many people come close to that? Ronnie, I know you do. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is more often than not, and maybe this is my own, you know, negativity, but I'm not negative. I happen to be very optimistic about these sorts of matters. I'm just observing, and I'm observing not just 2023. I'm observing decades, if not centuries, of Jewish history in which that has emerged. Think about, I'm, I'm speaking out loud, I'm thinking out loud with you. Think about the birth of Haskalah some 150, 200 years ago. Jewish enlightenment, enlightened thinking. Initially, and maybe throughout, there was a certain spark. I know there was a secular side, but there was a spark of a different way of envisioning our connection to God. I imagine over time that was lost. I imagine, but maybe I'm even wrong about that. There was never an enmeshing in the yeshiva to go, either way. There was never a feeling of we can do it that way. There were individuals who stood out. Rav Cook, for example, stood out in, as an outspoken um, uh, advocate for let's embrace every version. It's a very difficult statement for a leader, certainly. I'll look at the secularists and say there's something divine about what they're doing. If only we could accept that within the system and we could. He, he had such a vision. It takes a lot and he got attacked for that. Yeah, How could you? Today, do they bother? I don't know. It's hard for Merkaz Harav to say. Well, uh, anyone. Uh, hard to say. His philosophy is certainly still studied. Is it actualized in the way that he imagined it? Uh, recently, Michael Goodman wrote a book on this and very clearly suggested no, um, as have others. Um, what can I tell you? What I'm saying? And I'm, I'll go a step further. This is a tall task. Because as human beings, we have the lawyers and we have the philosophers. We have the liberal arts and then we have the hard sciences. It's hard to really merge these two. And oftentimes it's going to be skewed one way over the other. We said Rabbi Soloveitchik sought something of this sort. But his seeking was halachic man. His vision time and again was halacha. And through that, it'll be the prism and you'll see the world and appreciate God through that. It wasn't agada which can be translated into halacha. That wasn't his direct... I'm not, I'm not diminishing, but I am saying it wasn't the whole picture. The truth is, as I thought more about this over time, 
I thought about a book that I love very much. It's called Shohan Aruch. Many of you are familiar with it. It's written by a rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Karo. It's a fantastic book, and I spend much of my life studying it and appreciating its words and its sourcing and its uh, derivations and so forth. As I thought more about the book and then found that this was expressed by Professor Isidore Tversky in source number five, I realized that the book was very much written in a way uh, in which it stripped away any of the, and I'm going to call it this, Jewish thought aspects. Uh, I'm not talking philosophically right now. Jewish thought is stripped away in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is written strictly and completely as a legal text. This is what you can do. This is what you cannot do. There's little to no mention of, through this you'll appreciate. You can understand from this. You can the other way is, is more universal and it's more inclusive. And if you want to be a little bit elitist, or if you want to kind of like... Oh, interesting. Not, That's the way you're going, man. I'm not going to give it in. I don't want everybody in my club like you. So, Professor Tversky has your angle in the initial stages, but he spins it positively. Um, I'll help, uh, no, I'll help you. I'm not about it, but I'm saying if you're going through right. a falsehood, anytime you have a crisis... So what, and even though in that paper, as far as I know, he doesn't make the point of expulsion, I think expulsion really is what's underlying a lot of this, but he has a little bit of a, let's read first the first paragraph and then right afterwards where he gives, uh, he calls it conjecture, because it is. I mean, there's no way of proving why Rabbi Yosef Karo wrote it this way. Let's first, and he points this out, realize that this is in stark contrast to Harambam, someone like Harambam. Now, Harambam certainly wrote a separate book called Moren Nevuchim, his philosophy, and then a Mishneh Torah, his Jewish law, his halakha, but even in Mishneh Torah time, and again, and again, and again, he sprinkles it, he peppers it with Jewish thought. It's not the same as the Moreh, but there's not per se so many contradictions. He does search, even for the lay person who's just looking for law, to find opportunities for thought, for emotion as well. I just wrote, bought a book, read some of it over the course of a, a few days in Israel, called Petah Libi, written by a certain rabbi, I think it was Rabbi Tiger. Um, so in, in this book, what he did was he collected all those places where Harambam does that. I think he has a, a list of 36 or 37 places throughout his Mishneh Torah, and he writes exactly what you'd expect there not to be done about this, that's the Jewish thought expression, so he wrote a legalistic work on the thoughtful portions of Harambam. So he wrote a halakha book on Musar, it sounds quite self-contradictory, we'll make this point again later in the class, but Harambam did something like that. Uh, there are many others over the course of our Jewish history who have done matters of that sort. Shohan Aruch did not. There is yet another area in which austere functionality comes to the surface in the virtually complete elimination of ideology, theology, and teleology. Just so you know, Professor Tversky wrote this article for the masses. This was published in tradition. If you read his books that were written for the scholarly elite, well, there's words that are even greater and uh, more cumbersome than these. The Shohan Aruch, but you'll get to the points. Unlike Mishneh Torah or the Sefer HaRokeach, has no philosophical or Kabbalistic all right, uh, translate accordingly. The Shohan Aruch, unlike the Mishneh Torah, the Turin. Right. Okay. It could be, but I don't know. No, Musar, but philosophy as well. Hard to distinguish, at least in my mind. Unless, unless you're defining philosophy only as Moreh Nebuchim. 
But if you're defining philosophy as it should be, as Jewish thought, it is. It's not only instruction. It's not only rebuke. It was Jewish thought. It's maybe a... Okay. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to do a systematic study of Petah Libi. Anyway, the Shulchan Aruch, unlike the Mishneh Torah, the Turim, does not abound in extra halachic comments, guiding tenets and ideological directives. While, as I have tried to prove elsewhere, the Mishneh Torah does reveal the full intellectualistic posture of Maimonides, the Shulchan Aruch does not even afford an oblique glimpse of the Kabbalistic posture of Rabbi Yosef Karo, who appears here in the guise of the civil lawyer, for whom nothing was more pointless, he's quoting from some, uh, I don't remember who, nothing more inept than a law with a preamble, that's a nice quote. These, and then after the ellipsis, these specific visible practices are not coordinated with invisible meaning or unspecified experience. So he's stating, again, what I think, based on how we described it, the obvious, that's what Shulchan Aruch does, he strips it away. points this out, he gets a little bit, he says there's neither the specific nor the general picture of what it means to be a Jew, of what it means to follow the law, and those sorts of things. And then he says at the end of this second paragraph, the Shulchan Aruch, for reasons of its own, about which we may only conjecture, attempts neither. He doesn't get specific nor general and philosophical notions. Not to say, and by the way, that Shulchan Aruch was not, that Rabbi Yosef Karo was not a thinker. We read his writings elsewhere, it might not be Maimonidean, which it certainly is not, but he had Kabbalistic thought, he had mystical connect, connections and, and, and feelings, he has no mention of them. So he doesn't give a reason for anything? No reason, no, no, nothing. So has anybody, has any rabbi in, 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 in that kind of history, you know, down the line, thought about writing like a novel type of a book with, with a narrative and everything, like, kind of like the Torah, but in specific areas, to try to give us law and... The closest I come to that, Gabby, is something called, and you're not going to like this, certainly not Jaime, Talmud Bavli. It's the closest you come to it because it's, the, it's supposed to be a legal work and it's filled with stories and, and, and uh, exegesis on Pesukim. As its model, as, as I understand it, certainly. I'm going to say a month ago, I would agree that I don't like it, but rather Ricky Hittery has a little... Has changed, changed your perspective on it. Okay, so they... But what I'm... What, so there you go. So, but, so what I'm suggesting is further, and I'm sure he does so as well, is that the Agada needs to, and I'm sure he does, be read not only through a Jewish thought perspective, but the Hachamim use it historically, and we've done a lot of classes on this until today, to teach and preach certain legalistic visions as well. Aside from that, I have to think about it, not all that much because you'll have one way as opposed to the other. He suggests, Professor Tversky, at the conclusion over here, it's the second to last or third to last paragraph in the essay, consequently, every Shulchan Aruch only charts a specific way of life but does not impart a specific version or vision of metahalacha. It is because, and this is the way it was written, maybe it was a typo even, I don't, regardless, the latter is to be supplied and experienced independently. The valiant attempt of so many scholars to compress the incomprehensible, imponderable values of religious experience into cold words and neat formulae alongside of generally lucid halachic prescriptions did not elicit the support of Rabbi Yosef Karo. Halacha could, not be, could be integrated with and invigorated by disparate, mutually exclusive systems operating with different motives and aspirations as long 
as these agreed on the means and directives. What his suggestion is as follows, it's along the lines of, I think what Gabby was beginning us on, but he paints it very positively. He says, listen, halakha is something we can all wrap our heads around. I tell you what to do, I tell you what not to do. We can all wrap our heads around that. To tell you what you should think and experience and understand, I can't, says Rabbi Yosef Karo, begin to do that. I want that necessarily to be experienced by you. That's going to be something individual. That's going to be something personal, subjective to a certain extent. I could give you guidelines, which he doesn't all that much. His suggestion is that Shulchan Aruch is composed in this fashion, not because he negates it, heaven forbid, but rather because his expectancy is that we then go and develop the Agadah portion of life. Because if he were to do it, it wouldn't be, my words, Agadah at all. The moment I tell you, I transcribe, I write down what the meaning of this is, is the moment I've taken away the meaning of it from you. You've now drinking my words as opposed to experiencing my words. That's his suggestion. Everybody has their own That's his suggestion. It's a very, in, in my, in, it's a very telling and a very compelling suggestion. However, however, it leads <laughs> understood because the words, the words of Rabbi Abraham J. Heschel, which we quoted a few weeks ago, are halakha without aga, excuse me, agada without halakha is wild. There's a danger. That's the answer. That's a, that, that, that's a strict answer. And the answer, by the way, not answer, the suggestion that I have with regards to this is as bold, perhaps, and courageous, perhaps, as it was to empower the people to find their own agada, I think it's a failed attempt as well. Christianity and all these other, uh, you know, more universal, sure. philosophical, you know, like, uh, that's what they're fighting, I guess that's what they're fighting. They very much they're did fight it. it. Very much so. Very much so. In the early writings, that was very much... Very much their battle. You've overly legalized this, was their claim. You know what I'm saying? To make it exclusive... And not make sure that nobody seats their way in. I'm going to make it harder and harder and harder and harder. I'm going to make it instead of... Right, that's, that's your angle on it. Right. Huh? That's your angle on it, right. I think it's left to the leader to come up with his own agada or the teacher I'm, I'm sure the teacher um, uh, gives the, uh, the, the guidelines, but I do. I think context is certainly there, needs to be, but I do think the experience has to be had by the individual so they can be guided. His suggestion is that he believes halakha was supposed to guide you to that. If done properly, halakha guided you to then experiencing it. So there's a couple of things. So, is the belief that Rabbi Yosef Karo imagined people just studying Shulchan Aruch and not studying the, the sources of, the, of it? And he writes explicitly he wants you to look at the sources. This, I, I'm going to go a step further, David. The oh, sources... No, I, describe, I, think, I think the sources are, and he writes the sources, are the way in which I'm going to be able to appreciate the law. If it's just due because it says... Now, it's going to be very difficult for me to experience it independently. He writes, I don't want you to just follow Shulchan Aruch, I want you to read Bet Yosef. I think that's very clear. So I mean, the, the truth is, just in getting this a little bit further, go ahead. The second thing is that he's casting Rabbi Yosef Karan as like almost like a postmodernist, where he's saying he's not attempting to give you this universal system that you could understand the system, then understand the output, but rather you make your own system for... Your own system of thought. Your own system of thought, yes. Um, ironically. Uh, I, I suppose if you put it like that, to a certain extent, yes. If, if you need to use those no, words. Because, uh, when I said, uh, 
Is writing halakha or etiquette? That's a good question. I think it's more etiquette based on what I understand from the Gemara. It's not, uh, it's not very exact halakha okay. to be for centuries. So, so, as I said, there's little to know, maybe there's little. Maybe, maybe there's little in Shulchan Aruch even, um, but there's no Sefer Hamada. There's no, there's no even, there's no even meaning at the end of each of the sections. All right, but that being the case, just for a moment or two to develop this a bit further with regards to again this concept of Lifnim Shurat Adin, which I want to underbelly our conversation. I want that to be the foundation of our conversation. Where do we find such concepts of Lifnim Shurat Adin? If the Torah never prescribed it, so where do we find it? In past weeks, we suggested you find it in the rabbi's appreciation of the Avot. You look back at Avraham, Tzach, and Yaakov, we see them positively in the words of Gabi. You read the narrative and you see through them living a life of devotion to God, Lifni Mishurat Adin. The rabbis, as a result, say, Avraham, Tzach, and Yaakov performed all the Torah. What we suggested from sources, they never meant they, they ate Matzah and Pesach. They meant the principles, the foundations, the understandings of this connection, relationship with God. If you want to look, quote unquote, at where it was done organically, go back to Avraham, Tzach, and Yaakov. Do we find this? That's right, Sefer Hayashar of the Avot. If you want to find, in turn, expressions <coughs> later in the Torah, it's far and in between. You'll find it in Sefer Devarim. So I'm just sprinkled elsewhere. This uh, this ambitious call to to the people who are adhering to the Torah go beyond this, understand this. And the word I want to bring out now, and it's a word we'll, we'll address in a little bit, uh, more specifically in context, is the uh, is called the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is somehow, even though never explicitly stated by the Torah, between the lines. Ramban Nachmani in many places brings this out. He's, he's keen on pointing to us that Torah appears to be strictly legalistic, but there's something in between those lines. First and foremost, for our purposes, it's on that pasuk, pasuk says you should do that which is straight, and good in the eyes of God. But you told me to follow the mitzvot. Isn't that the same thing? Suggests Ramban, he quotes from Rashi, as a matter of fact, this is pishara, velifni mishurat adin. This is compromise. And uh, even uh, beyond the strict letter of the law. He goes on and he, he, he mentions many of the interpersonal laws of the Torah. Lo telech rachil, lo tikon velotitor, not having revenge, not speaking slanderously about others. Lo ta'amod adam re'echa, not standing idly by as someone's getting persecuted. Lo tikhalel haresh, mipenesevatakum, and so on and so forth. Says Ramban Nachmani, each of these needs to be appreciated. Read it, understand it imbibe it, let it become a part of you, and then act it out in ways that the Torah never specified. Torah gave you a principle and you're supposed to build the branches. It gave you the roots and you're supposed to blossom what the true depth of this is. Says Ramban, that's what the Pasuk means when it says, It's not just reiterating perform the mitzvot, it's understand the mitzvot and perform them in an experiential dimension in ways that you live your life otherwise. As a child, my mother taught me source number seven. Ramban Nachmani at the beginning of Parashat Kedoshim talks about what does it mean to be kadosh, what does it mean to be holy. That's of course in the book of Kohanim, maybe Kedushah means something to do with the temple rituals. Ramban Nachmani, where he's pointing to the Pasuk, which instructs all of us to be kadosh, suggests in the iconic words that we not be a naval birshuta Torah, which, which loosely translated means a person who follows the law, but at the same time is a low life. You're a person who goes after hedonistic pursuits, desires, and drives, but
but make certain that they're glot kosher. I'm certain that the wine and the meat is absolutely kosher, but that's all I eat and drink. I'm certain that the relations with my wife is, is, is according to the laws of taharat mishpacha, but it's at all times, under all circumstances. It becomes the, the direct direction of my life. It fills my life with no meaning, but lots of guidelines, lots of posts that determine how I do what I'm doing with little to no meaning. A naval Torah says, Ramban Nachmani, you're defying Kedusha. You're not living a life of sanctity. You're living, my words, a life of law, of rules. It's similar to what Harambam describes, what, uh, what rejoicing on the holidays is. Says Harambam, he cites Pesukim in Sefer Devarim. It's about enjoy inviting those who are destitute and needy into your home. Says Harambam, if you think that happens, Happiness and rejoicing is about filling your belly. That's not rejoicing. That's rejoicing of your belly. That's simchat kereso. That's not simchat shel mitzvah. To understand rejoicing, to understand mitzvot, means to understand that a naval bershuta Torah is so distant from the perspective and direction of the Torah. Back to our initial source. Miyom sheharav bet hamikdash. The rabbis are crying in that statement. You want to find God today? You'll only find him through halacha, which oftentimes will be skewed, will be twisted inappropriately because you're just following the rules without an underlying And this is not only, and we always say it, between man and fellow man, it's between yourself and God as well, as Ramban makes clear elsewhere. To speak about it in, in a, 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 yet again, and to look at the title of the class again and appreciate it by means of this next source, Agadah and Halacha is life and law. Halacha might be the law, but the Agadah is the life, is the experience that we have as following the Torah. Are we just law-abiding citizens of God, or are we alternatively living lives of godliness? That's the question throughout. That's, I think, the underlying statement of the rabbis where they look at a destruction of Mikdash and they say it's because we don't know how to do lifni mishurat adim. Rabbi Salvechik, in a well-known essay which he wrote about his consuegro, the Rebetzin of Talna, uh, the Talna Rebetzin, that's a, his, his consuegro was Professor Isidore Tversky, whom we read about earlier, was, was his son-in-law. And Professor Isidore Tversky, in turn, his son, is Rabbi Meir Tversky, is the current Talna Rabbi. He was my rabbi in Yeshiva University. Doesn't appear to be a rabbi, has a, well, I don't even know if he does that at all any longer. He had a very small shtibel in Boston. His father, Professor Zidor Tversky, was a professor in Harvard, while at the same time being the Talna Rabbi. Anyway, uh, he's the son-in-law of Rabbi Salvesh. He wrote a, a eulogy about his consuegro when she passed away. My rabbi son is, my, is one of my good friends, Meshulam Tversky. Uh, he's not a rabbi yet. Uh, maybe soon. Um, he lives in, I don't know, I think Pittsburgh now. Anyway, uh, so says, says uh, source number eight in, in this well-known uh, derasha of, uh, of, uh, or eulogy, he, he writes the following, and it shouldn't, and I don't know that it'll strike anyone wrong, but to me it's, it's inappropriate if we take this too literally. He divides, and he's, he's drawing from Kabbalistic notions of the female and the male. He doesn't mean it in the literal sense, males do this and females do that. He's talking Kabbalistically, what does male entity mean? What does female entity mean? That's the introduction. One learns much from father how to read a text, the Bible or the Talmud, how to comprehend, how to analyze, how to conceptualize, how to classify it and infer, how to apply, etc. We learn from the male personality how to think and how to act. 
Again, not restricted to males. He's talking Kabbalistically in that. One also learns, because he's referring to the Pasuk in Mishleh, excuse me, Pasuk in Torah, excuse me, he says, Pasuk in Mishleh, what does it mean to have a Musar from the Av and a Torah from the Em? He's making a Derasha. He says, furthermore, one also learns from Father what to do and what not to do. What is morally right? What is morally wrong? This is what we're calling in these classes Halacha. The male dimension, as Rabbi Zalvechik suggested, is the halakha. Father teaches the son the discipline of thought as well as the discipline of action. Father's tradition is an intellectual, moral one. After the ellipsis, what is Torah Timecha? What kind of Torah does the mother pass on? I admit that I am not able to define precisely the Masoretic, Milashon Misora, role of the Jewish mother, only by circumscription. I hope to be able to explain. In other words, I'm going to tell you stories, I'm going to describe it. I can't pinpoint the words, but I can. Avi Harari, unfortunately, can do so, because he does so. Experience, that's what he's going to say. Permit, permit me to draw upon my own experiences. I used to have long conversations with my mother, and in fact, it was a monologue rather than a dialogue. She talked, and I happened to overhear. What did she talk about? I must use an halachic term in order to answer this question. She talked, Me'inyana de yoma. Do you understand what those words mean? Me'inyana de yoma means what was going on. That's right. And that daily life, that was what I learned. Oh, that's halacha. That's Judaism. I used to walk, I used to see it. And I, he gets into only holy things, which is ironic, but he means everything. I used to watch her arranging the house in honor of a holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the Sidra every Friday and I still remember the nostalgic tune. I, used to, I learned very much from her. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in the formal compliance with the law, what we're calling halacha, but also in Here's his words, a living experience, what we're calling Agadah, life and law. She taught me that there is a flavor, a scent, and a warmth to mitzvot. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure of his hand resting upon my frail shoulders. Without her teachings, which quite often were transmitted to me in silence, I would have grown up a soulless being dry and insensitive. Hazit, what he's saying about his father. But he's not literally saying, he's not literally saying. The laws, he's not, okay. The laws of Shabbat, maybe. I know, I know, I know. Um, Well, worse, brisker. Anyway, the laws of Shabbat, for instance, were passed on to me by my father. They are part of Musar Avicha. The Shabbat as a living entity, as a queen, was revealed to me by my mother. It is a part of Torah Timecha. The father knew, fathers knew much about Shabbat, The mothers lived the Shabbat, experienced her presence, and perceived her beauty and splendor. I have to admit to you, just right now, I named this series, Agadan Halakha, Life and Law, without thinking about this essay. And I was out thinking about this class this past week, and I I remembered this eulogy. I had read this eulogy. I I feel as if I may have plagiarized these words. He's calling it that. It's not possible that I didn't draw from it anyway. That's just, I I didn't do it on purpose, but it's a beautiful description of it. uh, Let's say uh, law and and culture? Sure, sure. I think it's included. I think it's, I think if you're calling culture. Culture, the food. uh, The the everything. The everything outside of. All these college Suffet. students, yep. they, included. When you outside the college and they try to keep these kids in, I mean, it's not about law, it's about the kibbeh. That is what I'm calling Agada, And I'm just suggesting that within the Agada there was and is supposed to be, quote unquote, a dimension of halakha in a different appreciation and understanding. Yes? I think over time, people also, they need to know the benefit. You know, they tell them, do this, they do that. Now people, that, 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 that,
need to understand what's the benefit in it for me, what's the reason that Okay, so you're saying it's very pertinent this class to right now. I mean, in other words, whereas we could have gotten away with just halakha for 300, 450 years, and now we need something further. Second question. Does the fact that the Marisa Kaira was a mystic come into why you wrote it that way? Maybe you said that you're going to get the benefit mystically or something. Interesting, like interesting. So Jaime is suggesting different than Professor Tversky that the reason for it is because somehow, maybe, philosophically he believed, and he did to a certain extent, that just by performance of the mitzvot there was an inherent value as opposed to a haramba, a Maimonidean type of vision where I have to rationalize it and understand it. There's just something, but it's, it's a very nice perspective, something that I'm metaphysically altering through the performance. It's an interesting suggestion. Um, it, it certainly could be defended. Uh, the Fathers taught generations how to observe the Shabbat, concludes Rabbi Salvechik. Mothers taught generations how to greet the Shabbat and how to enjoy her 24-hour presence. And so again, we're describing very clearly, I think, getting to the point of halacha and agadah. Uh, in, in almost concluding, I bring you back to Professor Isidore Tversky. This time he's called Rabbi Yitzchak Tversky. This is a book that was just published um, uh, by Magid Press. It's called Perpetuating the Mesorah. As I said, he wore two hats. He wore the university hat and he wore and the academic hat and he wore the Rebbe hat. This one was the son-in-law hat. This is his eulogies for his father-in-law, for Rabbi Soloveitchik. He died only four years later, but they just published a book of many of them, and there's many significant passages and, 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 uh, and, and uh, classes in there. What's that? They are Hasidic. So that's, that's the exciting thing. Yes, but he was a university professor, so he had appreciation for the brisker side as well. Uh, so he had, he, had, he, he had an interesting blend between the two and uh, just publishing some more of his stuff outside of the strictly academic stuff. There was a book published a year or two ago, his Derashot on the Parasha. They're very short and brief and uh, don't have the usual depth. Uh, maybe that was the purpose of it, you know, things that he said at Se'udah Shilishit. This is the first of what seems like will be several other publications open to the masses of his Jewish thoughts. So in this, he's talking about, uh, it's his first essay in the book, and he's talking about the first Mishnah Perkavo, the specifics of how he got here and what he's referring to are not our relevancy. It's how he articulates. Thus, ha'amidu talmidim harbe. That's at the end of the first Mishnah. It's what Anshe Knesset Hagidola instructed future generations. Make certain you have many students. Must include this effort on the part of the teacher to help his students understand nishmat ha-Torah. Those are the words we were using earlier. This is the spirit, the soul of Torah, the inner experience of Torah to teach all 48 traits that the, the Mishnah in the sixth chapter of Avot tells us are necessary for studying Torah. Rather, they the end of Masech Tavos says there are 48 kinyanim, 48 ways of studying Torah. Those are not per se legalistic. Uh, those are how to live it. Those are how to experience it. This truth, and, and ironically, it's written in the Mishnah. He's suggesting that's what you get through osmosis, through involvement with another. This truth is frequently forgotten. And this caused the Rav, that's his father-in-law, much anguish of soul. I have a letter he wrote to me in the summer of 1969 when I was in Yerushalayim about his experience of Ha'amidu Talmidim Harbeh, of teaching Gemara and of his great disappointment of trying to teach Nishmata Torah. He describes how his father-in-law bemoaned this fact. And his father-in-law talked about this and wrote about it in one or two places, said he came to America and he couldn't find Nishmata Torah any longer. He said people want his mind, they want his action with regards to mitzvot and Torah. They don't want the experience of Torah any longer. There's a well-known story. It's written. I heard it from one or two people who were present at the time. Uh, Rabbi Salvechik used to teach classes in Onset in uh, Massachusetts during the summers. And 
Cape Cod. Cape Cod. In, okay, in Kaza, and he, he used to teach these, these classes during the summer, and uh, he would oftentimes teach on Talmud, on strict, brisker terminology, methodology, and things of that sort. One summer he wanted to teach them Likute Amarim, of uh, the, the Alter Rebbe of Chabad, Jewish thought. And they were a week or two into it, in addition to the Talmud studies, and then he closed the book and said, we're not doing this any longer. And they said, Rabbi, what happened? He said, I could see from your eyes, I can understand from, from your demeanor, you weren't interested in what's in my soul, you're just interested in what's in my mind. Words, he gave up on them to a certain extent. You're not able to really become a part of this as I experience Judaism. You're just able to accept, in our words, the halakha as opposed to the agadah. This helps us understand, he goes on, uh, Rabbi Torsky, and he suggests the following, it's a beautiful in my mind, interpretation. He says, if you look in much of Masechet Avot, the rabbis will, will, will name will be mentioned, then it'll say, Hu haya Omer. Instead of just saying, Hillel Omer, it'll say, Hillel v'shamay kibelu mehem. Hu haya Omer. Hem ayu Omrim. That extra, those repetitive words. He would say, what's with those words? It's a very, in my opinion, very brilliant interpretation. He says, Hu haya Omer meant you had to listen carefully. You had to pay attention when you were around them to pick up on this. That's Nishmata Torah. It's not something which could or would be written down. Ironically, it's in Pirkei Avot now, but it wasn't something which was legalistic in that respect. There was no Shohan Aruchan, how to live Torah. You had to just listen. You just had to be present. You had to get the general contours of where we're going with this. Paying attention to what they're doing and how they're speaking and how the community reacts and has reacted. That's the description in turn of all of this. I'll conclude with two last like points. In the Bukhara book, when it, when it says he used to say, didn't he, he, used to, he used to live that. That's what he's suggesting. He's suggesting he used to live that, and if he said it, it was in privacy. There were no sermons about this. There were no lectures about this because they can't be articulated in words and bullet points. That's his suggestion. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. It makes, I mean, listen, any teacher who's worth their salt, who's not just transmitting information, is by definition having this challenge. I'll just conclude with this. Uh, Professor uh, um, uh, Heschel, in source number 10, in his book, God in Search of Man, uh, writes the following. It's a well-known uh, Hasidic uh, uh, tale. Uh, this one is he quotes from Rabbi Yisrael of Roshim. It says, the Pentateuch, that's the Torah, Hamishah Hamshe Torah, consists of five books. The Shohan Aruch consists of only four books. Of course, that's not a question, right? The fact that one's five and the other one's four, uh, so what? Uh, but this is a Hasidic uh, tale. It's a Hasidic derasha to get across a point, not to be impressed by the question. Where's the missing part of the law? What happened to the fifth section of Shohan Aruch? Answered, the, uh, answered Rabbi Yisrael of Roshim, the missing part is the person. Without the living participation of the person, the law is incomplete. The suggestion here in God of, of Heschel from, from this Hasidic tale is that Shohan Aruch was, so to speak, written purposefully incomplete. The last part is the living dimension, is the experiential part. I was just reading this Pasha about, again, because it was translated into English, Michael Goodman's book on uh, the last sermon, I think it's called, or something like that, on Moshe, the last, on Sefer Devarim, and what he, he quotes this in the introduction, that's why I found this source. He, he's suggesting that this is what Moshe was doing in Sefer Devarim. Moshe was done with, generally speaking, the legal side of Torah. Now he's speaking to them about what happened, about how to comprehend it, how to process it, how to live that. I'll conclude with this and bring us back to 
Mishnah, our first source. I own a book, it's now three books. It's called Shohan Arucha Musar. It's written by a contemporary rabbi, Rabbi Nehorai Yosef Ohana. And in his introduction to the book, uh, again, listen to the word again, Shohan Arucha Musar. It's similar to that book that I mentioned. It's just very sl slim, the one I just mentioned. This is three somewhat fat books. Uh, it's talking about different Musarim, different Jewish thought in terms of expression and action as well, and composure, but it's putting it into a law book, and it's detailing. This one says this, and there's a debate and dispute about that, and in the introduction he says, I know there's something wrong here. I know there is, quote, a fifth dimension to Shohan Aruch. It's the unwritten part. It's the part that it's a Huaya Omer, Gabby. It's the part that you kind of just know through being a part of it. However, in our generation, he writes, where the tradition of the Safed, the experience has been lost, we now need to put it to writing. And as a result, I'm putting together this book for that. Of course, the irony is clear. You can't have a book of authentic, organic expression of emotions and experiences if it's written down. It needs to be a huhaya omer. Go ahead, Haim. It's a good question. It's a good question. Jaime asks, uh, where do you, uh, let's talk about today's, today's generation of Sephardic rabbis. I find it and experience it in an identical way, if not more uh, accentuated in the Sephardic world, in my understanding of it, in my reading of it, in my experience of it, there has been, this might be in the last 70, 80 years, a tremendous emphasis on halacha, very little on Jewish thought at all. It's not so much that there's a, a void in between the two, it's that there's an expression in one as opposed to the other. You'll find those who are Kabbalists, you won't find those who are thinking philosophically, you won't find those who are thinking beyond uh, just to do, you, you mentioned Chacham Ovadia Yosef, Chacham Ovadia Yosef's life was, his mission was the study of Halakha. Just yesterday, someone told me a story, there was a, a group of young men from the community who were visiting the current chief rabbi of Israel. And this group of young men, as makes sense in my mind, from a pedagogical, educational standpoint, you study Talmud very often with young men, uh, old men as well. It, it, there's, something, uh, there's something, in my opinion, enriching about it. There's something uh, about it that brings you into different modes of thought and expression as opposed to if you're doing halakha on its own, which comes off as somewhat static and stoic. You will, you will, 100%, but I'll, okay. I'm talking right now about the letter of the law, what you do, what you know, his book, Yalkut Yosef, versus Talmud. And so this group went to the current chief rabbi and said to him, listen, we have this fledgling young boys who are studying Torah diligently. They can only dedicate themselves to an hour, an hour and a half a day. Um, what would you suggest they study? Now, of course, they had already studied Talmud for two years plus. Uh, what would you suggest, rabbi? And so he said, halakha. So, so well, one second, no, you don't understand. They only have an hour and a half, two hours to the day. He said, that's right, halakha. No, but Rabbi, this is what the boys are passionate about. He said, that's right, I told you halakha. The story as I was told is that the rabbi who brought them quickly got them out of there. But the expression in that moment, the, the, the takeaway from that tale, whether true or not, Jaime, is very telling. It's, it, 
Well, or, or the vision, and I don't think he's trying to take you away. I think his vision and his mode of thought is very much expressed in halakha. Now, for one reason or another, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm bemoaning together with the Tal- Talmud, as I understand it, is the fact that we haven't or aren't finding a way of enmeshing the two. So it's not only the Ashkenazic world per se, it's very much the Sephardic world. I find it in our community, I find it in our schools, I find it in our synagogues. I'm not blaming anyone. The, the Hachamim are already speaking to this reality. This is a hard educational perspective to be able to bring people to a connectedness in a real way to halacha while enriching it with an organic connection. It's the generations in the house. It's in the house. Sure. It's uh, sure. A hundred percent. That's that is what's lost. And and again, what I will conclude then, just in terms of the irony and bring us back to the first sources, is how I wanted to conclude this with that last source. The last source, if taken in context, is hard not to smirk. He's saying, Rabbi Hanna, he says, Listen, I know I'm not supposed to write this book. You're supposed to see it in the house, you're supposed to experience it. But you don't, and you won't. So I need a right of me. Yom Shaharav Beit Hamikdash, and Lo Da Kadosh Baruch Hu Elar Ba Mot Shel Halacha Bilvad.